Hey there, welcome to The Good Complex. I am Hillary Kennedy. We're so glad that you've joined us. We're gonna have a great conversation today. And some of our conversations, they can get a little complex, but we always find the good in them. And today we're gonna be talking about something that is super easy and comfortable for everyone to talk about, <laughs> and that's race, right? Comfortable for everyone? No, of course it's not. Sometimes you say you're gonna have a conversation about race and people automatically tense up or you know they, they don't know what to say. But today I'm super excited to have two people here that are going to make this a lot of fun. First, I'm gonna start with Greg Holmes, artist, dad, all around great guy. Yeah, and pastor and um, mostly, I'm, I'm just tagging along because our, our, uh, our guest of honor uh, is Adrian Watson. And so we're super, Super excited to talk with you and get um, your perspectives and just um, in, in a good complex kind of way, learn together so that we could all get better. And so I want everyone to get to know you and I want to get to know you a little bit better, Adrian. So I want to start at the very beginning and tell me a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you grew up, all that good stuff. Okay. Well, I am originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and yes, I am a Browns fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough life. Yes, it is. <laughs> and I moved to Dallas in 1998 to attend Dallas Theological Seminary and never wanted to go back to shoveling snow. So I've been here for the last 23 years, uh, basically grew up here as an adult uh, in, in uh, Dallas. And I met my husband, Arthur, here in Dallas. We actually met at a church and found out that we lived across the street from each other. Oh, wow. And so we walked to meet at, at my apartment's office on our first date. Oh, wow. So we've been married. It, this year will be four years in April. And we have a little cavapoo dog named Crypto, <laughs> I guess, after cryptocurrency. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that was the joke that we would uh, name our dog Crypto, and then we ended up actually getting one. Yeah, so, That's great. Yeah, and um, I have a, 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 my family all lives, the rest of my family's in, uh, in Ohio, but I grew up in a Muslim family. Mm. My parents were in the Nation of Islam, and my mom, she just turned 80 the day after Christmas last year. And so she's still actively in that, mm. but I didn't really grow up in a Christian background. But when I decided to move to Dallas to go to seminary, um, that changed the entire dynamic of my life. And so I've been here ever since. Hmm. Well, so tell me a little bit about your professional background, because you are a speaker, an author. I mean, you kind of do it all, an expert. So tell me kind of how your professional background began. Well, when I was in seminary, I had a background in, in athletics and running and things of that mm -hmm. sort. So I got into personal training just to have a job, and that ended up becoming a career. And when I uh, when I was in seminary, I said, oh, well, I want to do workplace ministry. So I didn't go do the typical seminary job and work at a church. I went to go work at a, in health and fitness management. And I worked my way up through that and eventually became bivocational, started working on staff at a church, started doing missions trips to Africa and got the Africa bug to want to keep going back. So I went a few times and then eventually 
I ended up leaving health and fitness management to go into finance. So I worked in the banking sector for a few years. And while I was doing that, I had an opportunity to go back into ministry to work for Right Now Media, which was an amazing opportunity. So I worked there. And if you're familiar with them, they do digital uh, Bible studies and teachings and everything. And I was on the sales team on the business side. And then I currently work for another ministry called Enjoy Stewardship. And I get the opportunity to talk to pastors all day long. And I, you know, living with the minister in the house as well. (laughs) But I get a chance to talk to pastors and we help churches with their funding needs, specifically capital campaigns, annual giving, things of that sort. And so that's my professional life. And then outside of that, I started a ministry called Royalty Ministries back in 2012. So this is actually our 10th year. And that ministry serves the homeless women in Hmm. Collin County, as well as um, because of COVID, we made a switch to serving single single moms as well, because there was a significant need because of COVID. And um, as you mentioned, I'm an author, so I actually have my third book coming out in February, and I've written two others, and I speak, I preach, I teach, I coach. Do you sleep? Yeah, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Wow. That is amazing. Well, you know, I've heard when it comes to writing a book, it really is almost like having a baby. It is your baby. It takes a long yeah. time to get everything together, to go over all the the fact checking and making sure everything's correct and exactly how you want it to be. So tell me about your latest book, because this is exciting because it's about to come out. Yes, it's called The Demise of the American Evangelical, an overview of the history of racism and white supremacy in the church. Just a light, a light, funny. Just a light read, yeah. Right, a light read, read. (laughs) exactly. So this book came out of the, as I like to call it, the COVID cocktail. Hmm. So this was during 2020, and we were all sitting at home because of COVID. And then next thing you know, we see the video George Floyd. And that video touched me in such a way that it wasn't like the people before him, um, the Freddie Grays or, you know, the Sandra Blands. It wasn't like that for me. It was Mm -hmm. different. And it was the way that we saw uh, Officer Chauvin with his hand in his pocket as if he just didn't have a care about what he was doing. And it did something in me. I was always upset about all the different people who we've seen on TV before that, but that particular incident did something in me. And then it went from that to seeing the the fires and the cars burning and the rioting and the looting and all the protesting. And literally when I had to go to work that Monday morning, I could not pull myself together. Hmm. And I expected that someone would say something on my team and no one said anything. It was as if nothing had happened over the weekend. In fact, when we had our meeting, it was, hey, what did you do over the weekend? Oh, I was tanning and I was swimming and I'm sitting there like, really? And I ended up having a conversation with our CEO and just started just unloading how I felt and how everything was affecting me. And I literally had to end up leaving for the day because I was so emotional Hmm. because the world had seen what um, African-Americans had been experiencing for the 400 years that we've been in this country. And it was 
front and center and it needed to be dealt with and have conversation around it. And so I just started writing. And from that point, uh, the writing, I was just writing my feelings and writing notes and taking reading. I was already doing a lot of reading. I read a lot anyway. But that's kind of how it started. And I was having conversations with different people because now my phone's ringing. Adrian, can we talk about this? These were my uh, my white friend, brothers and sisters wanting to have more conversation. And that's how I began to write that book, but also start another group called The Silence is Deafening. Mm. And uh, that phrase comes uh, from actually from Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King because he said it's not, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's not the... Uh, that we are concerned about the people that that are loud or making these racist comments or things like that. But it's the silence of our friends that hurts more than anything else. That's my paraphrase anyway. And that's how I came up with the name. The silence is deafening because for so long, um, the church, the evangelical church has been quiet, has been silent on these issues. And now it's front and center. And this was an opportunity for the church to take the forefront and to lead in righteousness and justice, um, just as Jesus did. And so that is the reason why I started that group. I wanted uh, women specifically to have a, a safe place where they could have a conversation and ask questions that might sound stupid or might be offensive, but because they really wanted to make Mm -hmm. a difference or change that they could be in this place to do that. And from those conversations, those things ended up in my book. I ended up taking thoughts or taking ideas from those women that I talked to um, and included that into that book. And so on February the 8th, Two years later, almost, we are going to launch that book and hopefully have even further conversations about how the church can lead and change from where we were. You know, I know some I know some women who are in that group in in your group. And it's a just for our our listeners. It's a is it just a Facebook group? It's a it's a private Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group. Could ask to get to be a part of or whatever, because the 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 women that I know. If they use they they use certain the same words to describe it, and they'll talk about uh, it just being a safe place, uh, and w- either they're they're women of color or they're women who've experienced certain things in a safe place for them to to share some of that hurt uh, or some of their frustrations, but also some white women that um, don't want to be silent, but also don't know how to speak up. You know, because mm-hmm. I think that there's fear sometimes that, mm-hmm. like, I want to be part of the solution, but I, I keep saying the wrong things. I don't want to be offensive or I don't – I want to say something, but I – but sometimes we – you can get criticized if you don't say enough. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, well, then, you know, like all this kind of stuff, and it puts people in a – they feel like they're in a tough spot. And so uh, thank you for that group. Um, it's been one, at least for the, the women that I know, um, has been really, really helpful and healing for some, for some people. And that was the purpose of the group. Um, We do have uh, virtual meetings and we've had a lot of conversations and I've brought up topics and asked anyone who would like to have a conversation around that topic and then we'll have uh, a Zoom meeting around that topic. And so that's been going on for the last two years of these ad hoc little conversations Mm -hmm. and we've had some emotional conversations and some very challenging ones. But I believe that by doing so, it's allowed people to be able to ask questions that 
they weren't comfortable asking a person of color, but they know that they can do it in a safe place in this yeah. group. And I'm usually the moderator of those conversations, especially when it becomes a little tense, but they know that we, we can come out of these conversations knowing that we can mm -hmm. grow, even though we may not always agree. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the tragedies that, that we all saw on our phones and, you know, George Floyd and, and, and so many others over the last couple of years. And, and you mentioned how that was kind of a, everyone was able to see what, what, the, what had been going on for a long time. Um, and so it, it brought up a lot of tension just culturally, you know, a whole lot of things were going on culturally. But then your book is much more specific, even in the title, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you come as a ministry leader, you come as someone who went to, uh, got, got your graduate degree in an evangelical seminary, you know, so you have a lot of experience and you're speaking within the world that you know. Yes. Um, so within that, and I'm a pastor at an evangelical church, a church that is trying to wrestle with these things well. Um, and it's always one step forward, two steps back, or we don't do enough, or we did, or we made a mistake, or, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. and it's tricky. But I would just love to hear from your perspective, or from your perspective, um, how, how has the evangelical church dealt with race, or how is it dealing with race now? And, you know, I know that's, that's a lot, because yes. you wrote a whole book about that, and we don't <laughs> have very much time, but... Um, yeah, just I'd, I'd love to, not just the cultural conversation of this, but but how is this going within the evangelical church? Well, that's a twofold question. So let me start by saying that after the George Floyd incident, that's where we saw a lot of churches really diving into the conversation mm -hmm. about race. And churches were on board and wanted to be in solidarity. And churches that never would have said Black Lives Matter before that were saying those things. In fact, I remember being uh, in Austin and seeing a church uh, sign that says Black Lives Matter to all of us or something to that mm -hmm. degree. And that's something we never would have seen or heard prior to the George Floyd incident. And remember, it wasn't just George Floyd. We were just on the heels of Ahmaud Arbery mm -hmm. and Breonna Taylor. So it was the combination of those three incidents alone uh, that allowed the conversation to really be front and center. But now, two years later, it's as if we don't want to have the conversation in many aspects. And I, I hate to even bring up the phrase, uh, critical race theory, but that's the buzz phrase that you hear mm -hmm. about today. And it's a, a secular terminology. And, and oftentimes I believe that the church, we latch onto these secular phrases and bring them into the church realm, but we don't really understand what it is to begin with. We're just using right. this terminology. And what I'll say about it is, is that the the entire race conversation is being lumped into CRT now. And so it's being thrown out the window and you're having mm -hmm. churches say, well, we don't even want to have a conversation about race because this phrase will come up and it's going to cause people to get upset and things of that sort. So now, two years later, we're not really having that same conversation. And those same churches or those same pastors who were rah, rah, let's get on board and we're excited about it are not even wanting to touch the conversation of race. In fact, 
fact, um, even here in Texas, they're passing laws that, you know, so the schools can't have conversations, not that it was in the schools to begin with, but what is, what's happening from that are that black authors are being removed from the shelves. And so it's going even deeper than just that conversation. Mm. And so unfortunately, because of that buzzword, and several others, but mainly that one, the church has gone backwards and we're back into the silence of, of mm. hence the silence is deafening. Um, churches aren't really having that conversation. Whereas in the beginning, it seemed like we could have more of a conversation about what is a true multicultural church? How do we make our churches look more like the church that's represented in, 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 um, in heaven? But now we're scared that we're going to offend someone because they're, that person thinks we're going to talk about CRT and, and their children's Bible study. And so the churches aren't having those conversations. I can, say, I can tell you, too, from, a, from the perspective of a church leader, um, one of the things that we experience or one of the things that I experience is you would assume that there are certain topics that we could all agree on <laughs> that mm -hmm. like we're, we're not where we need to be and we need to move forward and regardless of where you are politically on which side of the fence you are like let, we, let's just put the politics aside and let's move forward you would think that there would be some topics that, w that we could do that on um, that is becoming increasingly difficult to do yes uh, because both sides of the political divide they've gobbled them all up like all every cultural issue has been gobbled up by one side or the other to where if you talk about anything um, if you talk about race, if you talk about, I mean, e even things like uh, talk about the environment mm -hmm. um, and certainly um, creation care is, is in the Bible. But like you talk about that, well, you're being political. Um, or if something comes up um, around race, like maybe there's a, a, a cultural, something happens in culture, then eyes turn on to the church. Like what is the church going to say? Are they going to respond? What are they going to put on their Facebook or on and inevitably, when we, when a church leader does, or when churches do, they get hit from both sides. Um, be, they either hit, they get hit that they're that they're playing politics, or they get hit that they just didn't do near enough, and it should have been much stronger. You know what I mean? So, it's hard. It's, um, and and that's not an excuse for silence because right. you know, over, you know, I think that the silence over issues that are clearly dealt with in the Bible that are clearly issues of human dignity and, you know, um, that, that we need to be a part of, um, we have to talk about and we need to, we need to voice those things. But I just, I'd love to hear your perspective. Like, how can we move beyond, like, it's, it's, it is all about the politics now yes. and it's all about the fighting um, and it's about winning. Um, and, and so even CRT you know, like it, it just depends on which side you're talking to, you know, and all Correct. of that kind of stuff rather than maybe um, some of the fundamental things about it or, or whatever. And so it's all about winning. And so it's 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 a tricky thing. So that's the direction of my book. Exactly. Hmm. is dealing with the fact that Christians, the evil evangelical church in America has become so politicized that is no longer about talking about Jesus and his life and how Christians should represent Jesus, but it's all about Republican or Democrat, or do I believe in this particular issue or that issue? And what we've done 
the church as a whole has embraced society and, and politics over the Bible. And that's where I think it, we have to start is we have to re-educate. And so many people, I have, I have a lot of terms that I talk about in my book, but I talk about just even patriotism and, mm-hmm. um, and American nationalism and things of that sort where America has taken on this identity that we're this elitist nation that, you know, everything goes through us and that we have to have uh, so much praise towards our country. But I'm reminded that um, in the Bible, it teaches us that it says our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here on earth. And if that is our true focus, then we don't, we can't get caught up in all the political realm or the different topics and issues. But human rights is not politics. And that's where I think the other issue is the church um, oftentimes will think that human, human rights issues are political and they can be political, but truthfully, they're not. And so the church is actually called to take care of the sick, the poor, the oppressed, to um, to help the widows, all of those different things. And when a certain people group or immigrants are being mistreated, uh, the church is supposed to be that place of shelter, the place where it's safe for them. And and unfortunately, today, many evangelicals are moving in a direction that is more focused on hate and racism and white supremacy and power than they are going back to the basics of what the Bible teaches. And it's loving your neighbor as yourself. And that is what my book is talking about more specifically is that we need to get back to the basics. A lot of churches have gone so far away that we don't even look like a, a Christian church anymore. And we wonder why so many people who are unchurched or people who are non-Christians say that we're a laughing stock or that they don't want anything to do with the church. They would rather go and, and not believe in the God that we say we serve. And it's because of what we're doing as a whole and how we're represented it. And we're seen as ugly and mean and nasty. And we support uh, political leaders who are uh, who cannot represent Christ, but say that they're Christian, but their actions don't represent it. And so it is it's offensive and it and it's at a point where people are like I don't want anything to do with that and until we make a change then we will lose the mission that we're going on mm-hmm. uh, God will always prevail but in this aspect it won't happen here in America until the people in the church especially the evangelical church makes a shift and that's where we are and that's specifically what the book is about so it's calling for repentance it's calling for change it's calling for acknowledging the things that are in our hearts and I don't just believe that racism is a black white issue racism is an issue that we all deal with we have biases Mm -hmm. we've grown up with biases and those things we have to challenge those things on a daily basis in order to move forward and make progress so that i can love my neighbor as i love myself Mm. what are some tangible ways that we can have better conversations about race because i think you know something we've all touched on is it's uncomfortable a lot of times because we don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't want to offend someone. We don't want to look like an idiot. But if we sit back and don't say anything and we don't broach the subject at all, like you said, when you went into work that day, you were like, I can't believe no one's even brought it up. Mm-hmm. And that's hurtful as well. So what are some of the sort of some of the jumping off points where we can start having these conversations, but do it in a, 
a productive way? Well, one of the things would be there are many groups that are out there that allow for those conversations to happen. Hence, the silence is deafening. Um, there's a group called Threaded. There's a lot of different groups that are online that you can join that if you're if you don't have friends of color that you're comfortable with that you can have those conversations in safer places but i would say if you do have friends of color to start with them and just have a general conversation and say hey you know um, the the events that are happening or these things that are happening have really really just hurt my heart and i realize you know some things that maybe i was thinking differently or maybe there's some things in me that i need to change would you mind having a conversation with me about it? And hopefully that person will say yes. And and that may not always be the case because to your point, some people are hurt and some people are angry because those conversations have not happened. So you'll have to find someone that is willing to have those conversations. And then from there, as your relationship begins to grow, the more you can open up the communication, you can ask those questions that you're afraid to ask because you now have a relationship with this person and they're not going to just throw the conversation out just because you ask something that might be a little offensive they're going to say okay i love this individual so i'm going to take it with a grain of salt and answer the question mm. and help them see how this was offensive to me mm. and that's the reason and way that you can actually go about doing it so joining groups having a small group with a conversation doing a bible study or a small group study around race uh, there's several books out there like the color compromise or mm. be the bridge uh, jamar tisby and, and latasha morrison those those are studies that people can join and you can ask friends and family members who kind of have the same mindset as you or and are willing to take that leap of faith and then and once you're doing that invite a person of color to come talk to the group and have conversations with them and go out to and have a, not in the covert world obviously but <laughs> go out and have lunch or dinner or uh, on your job or in your schools or at your church talk to people who don't look like you and get to know them so that you can have those types of conversations. What about when it comes to kids? Cause I am a mom of a three-year-old and he he's noticed that there are kids at school that look differently than he does. But what are some ways that I can encourage him to notice those differences, celebrate them, be excited about how we're all different and want to learn about other people? I mean, should we be having those conversations on a daily basis? Is it, you know, in your eyes, is it better that you see these parents having different friends from all sorts of backgrounds is modeling it that way, a great way to show our kids, hey, you know, God made us all. We should we should reach out to all of our friends in our community. I don't know. As a parent, sometimes it's confusing because we want to raise the next generation to to step up, to be better leaders, to to stand up and say something and not be silent. But then as a mom, sometimes I don't really know how to do that because my experience is so different from your experience. I think it's both and. So depending on the age, on how much you reveal or say, one of the things, uh, there's a phrase that a lot of times um, um, I've heard uh, white people say, and it's, I don't see color. And and one of the things that I try to educate in that particular phrase is how it takes away from the uniqueness of the individual when you say that. And I know the heart behind it is if to say, well, you know, you're black and I, I don't see your color, you're just my friend, right? But that can also, also have a, a negative connotation. And so it's in the 
the way that you present things to your children. And not that your child can't see color, but yes, you do see the differences and we embrace those differences. And the fact that, that your friend looks different, there's, there's, that's a great thing. And let's talk about why it's great because like you said, God made that person too. And so embracing the differences instead of saying that you don't see them and embracing the challenges that come along with those differences. And when things happen, when your children are old enough to have conversations, if they see something on TV happen and they can have that conversation use that as a teachable moment. Don't push it away or try to keep it from your children, but say, let's talk about why this isn't right and why this situation happened. And so that the dialogue can begin to happen with your children and they'll ask you questions and you might not be able to answer all of them, but at least you're starting to plant seeds into their mind that these things aren't right. This is not the way that we want to live. We want to embrace everyone around us. And that's how you can impact change at home. Hmm. You know, one of the things that I have sensed in my own heart and my over the last five plus years, five, ten years, I guess, um, and in some of the folks that I know, um, is that it's w- when when race comes up and there's a feeling, because I'm a, obviously a white male, um, that w- when I, if I were to say, or some of the people that I know, like, well, I don't see race, they're, they're trying to communicate. It's like, I honestly don't feel like I'm racist, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think there's a, I think in this conversation, there is a little bit of a, of a, a miscommunication that at least for the, the people of color, my friends that I, that I have, they're, they're, they would say to me, I'm, I'm not claiming that you are. We're not talking about your motives. We're talking about outcomes. Right. Um, and that over like, like, like issues like redlining or issues like with, when, when entire populations don't, ha, didn't have the opportunity to build generational wealth. We can't just like flip a switch and say, well, now there's equal opportunity or whatever, and then wash our hands of it and say that that, that all just sort of goes away, that there right. are lingering effects to that. And that which makes, so even when we open up um, opportunities uh, or, or remove race as, as a barrier for certain opportunities, that doesn't take away some of the other barriers that I don't even realize are there that, that change the starting line for people, that I, I sort of have a certain starting line that I had. Um, that because of, the, and it's you know very possible that because of lingering effects of of some of the systemic things that people had a different starting line, and th- those are lingering effects and you know that kind of stuff. And so, so for me, it has been. It, it, there was a little bit of a switch of, uh, and it's actually a very good complex phrase that we ask is like, of, of how are they right? Even people that we disagree with, you know. So for me, asking that question of like, I don't understand where they're coming from, but I, but that's probably more on me. Like, how are they right? And answering that question, but then also trying to trying to answer the question of if since I'm in the majority culture, there are probably things that I don't even recognize, um, and then actively looking for those things, you know, because I think it's it's we all get. What I sense is that we all get really defensive yes. instead of saying, you know, I probably have blind spots. I know I have blind spots. Uh, there are things that I'm wrong on. I just don't know which one, you know, and kind of coming at it that way um, has been a challenge for me. And it's been a journey for me. But the people that I know that are on that, it, it's it's a it's a good journey to take. So one of the things that I would say to that is um, the 
we should be able to have a conversation without uh, when it comes to race without it being a personal attack hmm. so that's the first we have to be able to come to that so before we can even have a conversation i'm not attacking you i'm not attacking you but we're going to have a discussion about race and if we can come in with our guards down then i think we can be much more open but what happens a lot with specifically when having conversations uh, about race, it becomes, oh, she's attacking my personal upbringing. She's attacking my character. She's attacking this where, no, I just want you to see what it's like to live in the Mm -hmm. life of a person of color. These are the things that we often use the word of, uh, you may have heard the term code switching. Mm -hmm. And to code switch means that at work, I'm this person, but when I go home, I can be my normal self and I can. So it's for the person of color we often live in two worlds and in and if we have a church and it's not a predominantly person of color type of church then we may live in three different worlds we have our church world we have our our work world and then we have our home but what we want as a person of color when i'm having these kind of conversations i want you to know that hey i'm just bringing this to the table so you can see those those shoes that i walk in every day i'm not personally attacking you and maybe you have participated in these things or maybe your family did or maybe your ancestors did but because we're having this conversation this means I love you and Mm -hmm. I want to see you grow in this area and challenge me as well and so if we can start there and have a conversation that way and not be so defensive and think that it's a personal attack on one's character that I'm just trying to get you to see because what happens is oftentimes like you said we can't see our blind spots We need someone to say, hey, your slip is hanging for those that remember what a slip (laughs) is. (laughs) You know, we, we have people that can tell us that and say, no. You need to tuck in your shirt. You you know, you're not together. And if we can have people like that in our lives, what kind of people can we be? We can grow. We can be challenged. We can move forward. But as long as we become defensive or we're constantly thinking about how to uh, to uh, have the next answer to what you're saying, instead of listening to the heart of the individual in front of us, then that becomes more challenging. I remember I was having a conversation specifically being here in Texas and seeing so many Confederate flags. And Mm. this was around the time that one of the states decided to remove the Confederate flag from their um, from their national state. And then after that, the the sales of Confederate flags just increased over um, America. And I was having a conversation specifically, and I, I talk about this in my book as well, about what the Confederate flag means to the African American. And this individual kept saying, well, it's just about Southern heritage. And I was trying to get them to understand Although it's Southern heritage to you, it's racist to me. Mm -hmm. And to try to get that person to understand how that it may not be a big deal to you. But when I see it, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to drive behind that truck that has the Confederate flag. I'm afraid to drive down that street with the house with the Confederate flag because I'm a black person. And I know what that has symbolized over the course of the history of this this nation. But not alone, especially living here in Texas what that symbolizes. And so if someone in that conversation can say, Adrian, I see where you're coming from. I never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. And and maybe be challenged about it. And maybe even at, at the best part, take it down, get rid yeah. of it. Then that to me is progress. If we can make those kind of changes. One of the things that I sense among the white community is a is a tendency to look at look at the black community. Oops, I hit your microphone. 
um, look at the black community and say, well, you shouldn't feel that way, you know, um, because look at the opportunity or like, like you shouldn't feel that way. And that I've come to realize that that's about as effective as me telling my wife, you shouldn't feel that way. You know, when she has, you know, it's like whether I feel like she should feel that way or not, we're in relationship. Now we got to deal with it. Right. You know, I got to, I got to hear her out and we can maybe have a conversation, maybe have a, it's possible that she has a blind spot. It's possible. I have a blind spot, but I can't just say, stop feeling that. And so if I care for you, um, and if I care for my, uh, my neighbors who are people of color or whatever, and if they feel a certain way, whether I feel like they should feel that or not is irrelevant. Um, I need to hear them out and hear yeah. what's going on. And as long as we have the Derek Chauvin's of the world or right. the uh, Mick Michaels of the world, uh, the Ahmaud Arbery mm-hmm. um, right. murderers, then that conversation can't just be pushed under the rug. Right. Because as long as that's still happening, the African-American community, the Hispanic community, uh, the Asian community, uh, as they're seeing things happening because of COVID, as long as those com- things are still happening, that race conversation still needs to happen. Yeah. So there's a few other pieces to the conversation. And, and Greg, you brought up uh, redlining. That's part right. of it. But also convict labor. These are things that... I've got to be honest, I really didn't know much about. And after doing some reading and some research, it's shocking that we don't hear more about it, uh, which is why I want to bring it up with you while you're here today. Okay. Well, I talk about this in my book as well about convict labor, but it goes back to the point of the Reconstruction era. So once slavery was demolished and the Reconstruction era began and um, African-Americans were able to start building homes and build businesses and things of that sort. There were other things that took into place, and this was before even Jim Crow laws were added in. But if you did not have a job after you left your plantation and now slavery is over, it was against the law to not have a job. And so many of the men, especially the men who were um, were unemployed, became incarcerated because they were unemployed. So it was against the law. They were put into jail and they began convict labor. So you fast forward generations of men who were put into pl- uh, prisons, who were separated from their families, not to mention those who were separated from their families when they were on the plantation, never got a chance, an opportunity to really bond. And now you can see generations of that later, why we have so many single mothers as African-Americans. That has not changed. But on the convict labor side of it, that hasn't changed either. Now it's corporations who own the jail system, so they're private jails. They take these convicts, the people that are in jail and they basically have slave labor and we have major institutions that I talk about in my book who are using the convict labor specifically so that they can uh, use it for agricultural reasons or warehouse or whatever it is that they're using it for. They have these uh, people that are in jail and they are using utilizing them for pennies on the dollar. And so it's still slavery. It's just another form of it. And it's mm. corporate slavery in the jail system. And that's still going on today. That was shocking to me because I feel like we hear so much about that in places like China. But you really don't read much about it happening here. And as you're saying, it's been going on for generations. Generations. Mm -hmm. And it's still happening today. So concerning. So I would love to know, where do we go from here? I mean, like you said, I feel like we, we made some progress in 2020. 
and now it's like things have kind of been swept back under the rug a little bit with CRT and all of that because people are too afraid of getting political or being accused on, mm -hmm. on being one side or the other. Where do we go from here with this conversation? How do we make progress? I think we have to start talking again. We just can't be worried about who's going to be angry, who's going to cancel us, who is going to say whatever. But if you truly have a heart for change, then you take the good with the bad and you're willing to have those conversations. I, again, going back to the reason why I wrote the book about the demise of the evangelical is because the church should be leading in this area and we're not. And we need to be having this conversation again, regardless of who's angry about it, because it's the right thing to do. And it's something that Jesus would say he would do. He would be standing there in solidarity with those individuals that are going through these issues to the specific populations of our country who have been oppressed for years upon years upon years, including immigrants. And so it is our duty, at, if we say we are Christ followers, it is our duty to continue to have those conversations mm -hmm. and to make changes where we can. This issue has been going on for 400 years. This is not a, a sprint. It is a marathon. Things aren't going to cha change overnight, but it can't change if we're not talking about it. Well, I think that your work and and your book and your all, all the things that you do, uh, we just we appreciate you and appreciate the the work that you do. Thanks for keeping things front and center. Thanks for uh, um, keeping us uncomfortable uh, when it needs to when it needs to happen. And uh, we're in this together, and we want to um, we want to move forward, and we want to be better. And um, as as a pastor in an evangelical church, um, I want to be better, and um, I want my church to be better and um, we can get there. Yeah, so thank you. Well, and Adrian, I would love for people to know, tell, tell the name of your book again and where people can get it because I think this is something we could all benefit from. The name of the book again is The Demise of the American Evangelical, an overview of the history of racism and white supremacy in the church. It will be available beginning February the 8th, 2022 at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. And you can go to my website at www.adriannelwatson.com and it's A-D-R-I-A-N-N-E. Watson.com. Information is there. You can register there as well for our virtual event where we'll be discussing the book and having conversation. Uh, and it'll be a dialogue on February the 13th. And that's on Eventbrite as well. And so you can tell by the time that we're recording this, it is not yet. We are, it, we are pre uh, book release. Uh, you might be watching this and it's already released. And so all of that is much easier to find. So yeah. Well, I love it because this gives people an opportunity to go to your website and find those those opportunities to join this conversation and jump right in. You've already given them a place to start from, so I love it. Adrian Watson, thank you so much for joining us today. You know what? Yeah, it was you. it's a hard conversation, but this was actually a really fun conversation yeah, too. This was so great. Thank, thank you. you thank much. you for having me. All right, we will be back with another episode soon, but until then, make it good.